me something. Uh, the podcast where I indulge my curiosities about, well, anything really that piques my interest, and then I pass on all the cool bits to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. This episode is going to be debunking some persistent animal myths that you may or may not already know the answers to, but in reality, it's just an excuse for me to talk about cool stuff about said animals from persistent said animals. myths. You could say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, most animals are more persistent than us. We, we're yeah. pretty new. So anyways, um, so even if you already know the true answers and know these things are myths, um, I think you'll still learn lots of cool stuff. I thought you were going to say, like, don't show it out and ruin it for everyone else. I, I see where you're going with this. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I totally think there's a lot of people listening and they're going to listen in huge groups because yeah. tons of, dozens of people listen to this podcast after all, all together in a group. Yeah. So no spoilers, I guess. Um, I don't know, Everett, do you think you probably know most of the no. I think you probably do know most I mean, of yes. This. Let me revise my answer based on your certainty. It, w- it was definitely a yes. Okay. Okay. Great. Well, uh, how about you teach me something? Okay. I will. Okay, good. I still think you'll learn something. Excellent. All right. So our first myth is that vampire bats suck blood. Hmm. So you probably already knew that that was a myth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but... I bet you didn't know a whole bunch of stuff about vampire bats. Well, I did know they were bats. Okay, that's a good start. Yeah. Um, they belong to the family Phyllostomidae, which are the New World, you know, that means the Americas, right? Yeah. Uh, New World leaf-nosed bats. So vampire bats are in the subfamily Desmodontinae, and there's three species. There's the common vampire bat, the hairy-legged vampire bat, and the white-winged vampire bat. So these guys live in like Central and South America, um, countries like Mexico, Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina. Mm-hmm. Um, and they feed entirely on blood. That's called hematophagy, or you know, which and you know, herbivore, carnivore, a blood eater is called a sanguivore. Well, that makes sense. It does. Um, they are the only mammals that feed entirely on blood. Oh, so are they the only one that have that title then? Well, there's oh, bugs. A there's a lot of insects. Oh, yeah. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yes. There are, um, lots of birds that actually drink blood, but really? they don't survive entirely on blood. Okay. Yeah. Yes. There's like a few, quite a few species of birds that drink blood, like mm. oxpeckers and stuff. Anyways, um, how do they get the blood? Okay, so vampire bats use infrared radiation to locate like hot spots on their prey, um, where like the blood blood vessels like are closer to the surface and the only other vertebrates that we know that can detect infrared radiation are snakes okay and not all snakes either boas pythons and pit vipers cool so this is this is something i think is cool the inferior colliculus so that's the part of the bat's brain that processes sound um, is also adapted for vampire bats to detect what the regular, like, breathing sound of a sleeping animal would sound like, so they can find, like, a sleeping animal to go prey upon. Um, yeah, so they can just hear a sleeping animal and know that they're asleep. Cool. Um, 
And other bats, pretty much every other bat, lost the ability to maneuver on land. So what that really means is that the ancestor to all bats lost the ability to maneuver on land. And vampire bats specifically have re gained this trait, re-evolved it within their small little lineage. This makes sense. Um, So they can walk and jump and kind of run. It's weird looking. It's very weird looking. I would suggest looking it up on YouTube. It's a little creepy. Not like completely horror movie level creepy, but it's creepy. Because think of like a bat running on all fours. So like it's using its wings and its back legs. But... The forelimbs are what's really used for power because the wings are much more developed. Obviously, they use them for yeah. flying. So so they're like really going with their front limbs. It's kind of like the creepy witches that crawl with the... Yeah, it's it's creepy. Okay. It's, it's odd looking. Anyway, so they kind of crawl around when they get close to their, their prey and then like kind of jump on them as opposed to like flying in and landing on them because they don't want to wake them up or startle them. Like they're little ninja bats. Um, they usually prey on like large-ish mammals like livestock, but I mean, they, they can definitely, um, prey on a human. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on how hairy the animal is, it might need to shave away patches of hair with its teeth and to okay. get in there. Yeah. So they sneak up on the victim. They make tiny puncture wounds with their razor sharp incisors, but the bite's like pretty much painless. So they don't wake up the animal or anything. Um, they leave a little like kind of like bowl shaped opening. So that's about three to five millimeters long. So nothing, nothing major. Um, and then they use a special anticoagulant in their saliva called Draculin, mm. which makes me giggle because scientists always name things the best possible. Best name. <laughs> they they, in always, the world, joke, they right. always joke, joke around, you know, so that delays the blood clotting. Um, and then here's our myth. They don't suck the blood. They gather it by using the specially grooved lower lip on the wood and or on the wound, sorry. And then um, they kind of like press their tongue. They just like they kind of just like lick lap it up. It up. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but I can see how that one, uh, how that myth might start if one were to watch them. I could see that being. Uh, misguided or or misidentified as well and scientists name them vampire bats so like what do you expect yeah (laughs) um but here's the thing about eating blood blood has you know proteins and sugars and some minerals and lipids but it's mostly plasma right and plasma is more than 90 percent water by volume um so blood is very very low in calories and very high in water so uh vampire bats can't store energy in like like body fat wise, you have to pee all the time because they're drinking so much water. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, anyways, they can't really miss meals. Okay. Um, they can only last two or three days without food, and so there's a social safety net feature almost. So if one bat doesn't get any blood on one night, it can kind of go begging to the rest of its colony, and oftentimes another roost mate will regurgitate blood. In you know, share okay. the blood, and then the favor might be returned some other later time. Um, it's it's a very interesting form of um, the, the word for working together is escaping me. Um, but you know, social safety net, r- reciprocal altruism is the okay. word I'm looking for. Um, anyways, the peeing thing that's actually kind of interesting because you know how tiny bats are, right? Um, they can't fly after they eat 
unless oh. they pee. Okay. Because that'd be too heavy. Right. So, um... Because I'm assuming they have to take in a significant amount of blood in comparison to their body weight if it's not actually all that particularly, like... Okay. Nutritious. So, they start to pee within two minutes of feeding. And then they can take off. At that point, when they can finally fly again, they have gained 20 to 30% of their body weight in blood. Wow. So, before they peed, it was more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, they have to, like, have a lot of it. And, obviously, there are risks to being a blood-drinking animal. So, they've had to evolve, like, this really high resistance to these blood-borne viruses, viruses called endogenous retroviruses. Um which are quite interesting and might be a whole podcast episode in themselves because retroviruses are super cool. They actually change the DNA. And they're coming back around like other retro things, VCRs and... You just said that, didn't you? I did, yeah. Womp womp. Okay. (laughs) That was all I had to say about vampire bats. We had to end on that joke, so... (laughs) Best one. (laughs) What are we going to talk about next? Goldfish. Okay. Have you heard the rumor that goldfish have a five-second memory or yeah. three-second memory? That's a rumor, too. Yeah, That's a myth. I, I think they have much longer. Okay. Well, much in air quotes. What do you think it is? I gotta think it's at least, you know, a few days or a couple of weeks, something like that. Like, they, I'm assuming that if you were to feed them in specific ways that they would remember how to or where to go to obtain food or something like that. I think, you're, I think most animals can. You're vastly underestimating a goldfish's memory, but let's okay. let's talk about it. Because again, this is one of those ones that like I just found some cool stuff out about goldfish, so Great. It's not even about the the myth per se. So there are over hundred and twenty five types of goldfish. Um goldfish is Caraceus erratus, by the way, if you were interested in that. You can almost um, compete with Pokemon at those name. numbers. So I mean, obviously, humans have been breeding them for a while, for over a thousand years. Wow. They are domesticated in ancient China from the Crucian carp, which is, by the way, like it's still the same species of the goldfish, just like how dogs are all the same species, but we've made them like so incredibly different. Yeah. So the Crucian carp is still the same species as a goldfish. It's still the Caraceus erratus. It just looks very, very different. Um, and the Crucian carp is one of the most important farm fish globally. Um, so the appearance of red scales on this carp, so it's normally gray or silver, uh, was first recorded during the Jin dynasty, which was 265 to 420 CE. Okay. And then during the Tang dynasty, which was 618 to 907 CE, um, goldfish, they started kind of, um selecting and breeding the ones that they liked best phenotypically like the ones they liked appearances of best and they would raise them in ornamental ponds and water gardens and then in the song dynasty 960 to 1279 ce range they're really domesticated by this point the gold variety of the goldfish so like yellow or gold um, was actually the symbol of the imperial family and goldfish became known as the royal fish so at this point commoners were forbidden to raise yellow goldfish just for the imperial family. Interesting. Yeah. So then the goldfish is introduced into Japan and Europe at the beginning of the 17th century and then North America around 1850. And they became very popular. One of the first animals introduced to North America by people on purpose. Okay. <laughs> so the popular belief, like I said, is that goldfish can't really remember anything that happened more than a few seconds ago. 
and this is not true. Um, so how do we really find out about fish memory? How do we, how do we figure this out? Ask them. <laughs> yeah. How does that, how do you think that would go? Poorly. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably why this myth started. Yeah. So fish in general, let's start with fish in general. So Colin Brown at the University of Edinburgh started studying the crimson spotted rainbow fish. So he compared fish that knew their tanks well with fish that had just been placed in their tanks, basically. Um, so he used this net with a hole in the middle and put that in the tank and swept it from one side to the other. And he discovered fish that knew the tank really well, like a strong memory of their tank, were able to escape through that little hole in the net way better than the newly transplanted fish. So he was thinking that they could kind of, like, they knew their tank so well that they could just focus on the net. Okay. They knew, like, they were very focused on the hole. Like, they knew the rest of their tank. They didn't have to kind of think about it. And that the fish that didn't know, like, couldn't remember the tank had to, like, put more energy into figuring out the rest of their surroundings. And that's why they would get caught more. So that was kind of one of the first things people were like, okay, fish might have some good memory. Um, he tried the experiment later and he realized that the fish that, you know, knew their tank remembered it so well that they could escape again in the follow-up study 11 months later when they hadn't tried it in 11 months. Sure. Um, which by the way, 11 months is nearly a third of that fish's lifespan. So that's, you know, like a human remembering something 30 years later, right? Yeah. That they haven't done in 30 years. Yeah. Um, so some fish also can learn music. So we... What do they play? <laughs> the blues. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. They don't actually learn the music. They hear, They learn to hear music mm. and recognize the music and stuff. So we're talking about carp now, which, as you can remember, goldfish is a type of carp. So this is getting closer to goldfish. It's true. Um, Ava Chase of Cambridge taught carp to tell the difference between blues and classical. She played John Lee Hooker for blues, and she played an oboe concerto by Bach for the classical music. By, you know, feeding food rewards. Okay. And so they kind of, they played the music through loudspeakers into the fish tanks. And she then discovered that the carps could generalize from what they had learned. And then they started to be able to classify music that they had never heard before into classical or blues. Hmm. Yeah. Cheese or petrol. (laughs) God, this is not a funny skit. (laughs) I do not know why anyone thinks that the petrol, what is it called? Uh, Cheezoid. Cheezoid. Yeah, Yeah, Michelin Web. Not not a fan. That's okay. Um, Some people think it's hilarious. Apparently, you're now on that train. I thought it was enjoyable, but keep going. Fair enough. Um, Let's talk about goldfish, specifically goldfish. Okay. They can be trained to respond to... Certain colors of light, different kinds of music, and, you know, other kinds of sensory cues like that. They can remember things that they've been taught as much as a year later, we think. So researchers have, researchers have taught them to play fetch, hmm. um, push levers, do the limbo, and play soccer. If they're fed at the same time of day, they'll remember that. They'll anticipate the feeding time, which kind of implies they have a good sense of time as well. Um, they've been shown to be able to recognize their masters and, you know, pick their favorite person. Hmm. They will be more active when they see the person that they like, and they will kind of hide if they see other people they don't like or strangers. Cool. Up to an hour. Yeah. Um, so blind goldfish also have that same type of behavior. 
Except for they respond to the voices. So they probably have, you know, a visual memory and a audio memory as well. Um, so in one experiment, the researchers got goldfish to learn that if they press a certain lever at a certain time of day, so it was about an hour of the day if they press the lever in that time, that they'd get food. If they push the lever any other time of the day, they didn't get anything else. And so it was a very quick amount of time before they realized the goldfish would only push the lever during that time of day. And they would ignore it the rest of the day. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, in another experiment, the researchers trained young goldfish to like associate a certain sound with feeding time. And then they released the fish into the ocean. Cool. And then about half a year later, when the fish were all grown up, they would play the sound over a loudspeaker and the fish would swim back from wherever they were to where they were released and like get some food. Cool. Yeah. Um, so where did this myth come from? Possibly. It seems to kind of have started when scientists reported that the fish brain doesn't have a cortex, which is where um, the hippocampus is located. And the hippocampus is where many animals like rats and humans store their like explicit memories. And so scientists decided that fish probably couldn't create a cognitive map, you know, a little map in their brain that they can refer to like you make on a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, but after they've done all the experiments on goldfish memory, they realized that they can navigate mazes and remember that kind of stuff. Well, they found that fish obviously do use spatial cognition and they rely on extra maze kind of cues to navigate. So there are areas of the fish brain that are not the hippocampus, but like analogous. They have the same function. So, you know, we've, we used to just discount things that weren't like our brains. You know what I mean? But we kind of learned that maybe there's similar functionality. Um, Goldfish maze performance shows they get faster and faster over time. Their memory lasts at least six months. But it's not like longer times have been tested. It's not like, oh, they forget after six months. We just right. didn't, we just haven't tested that yet. Um, speaking of goldfish, another kind of goldfish myth that spawned from this lack of memory, falsehood, and kind of, you know, TV and movies is that you can put a goldfish in a fishbowl because, you know, it's just new for them all the time, right? So no big deal. Hmm. But a goldfish should actually have at least a 30-gallon filter tank for a single goldfish. Um, and you should change out the decor every once in a while because they will get bored. So the goldfish can grow really big. And when you put it in a bowl, it'll stunt the growth and then they'll die. Because goldfish should be living 30 plus years. Wow. Yeah. If you take care of them properly. Okay. Whereas I bet most people that have fish in a fishbowl think, oh, but they live like a whole year. Yeah. Which is not good. No. Yeah. Okay. Here's another one that I guess I'm sure you know already. The myth is that bulls are enraged by the color red. Oh, no. I've always heard, or well, always heard. Uh, I believe that it's just the motion. Correct. So obviously this is another myth that kind of stems from the media. Or you've got a bull getting angry and charging the red cape or... You got Space Jam where they paint red on something and get the bull to charge onto yeah. the court, you know. Yeah, good TV. Right. So the manager's small red cape is called the mulet, muleta. Muleta? I don't speak Spanish. Um, why? And it charges, yes, you're right. It charges it because of the motion. Um, bulls are colorblind to red and green. They're red, green, yeah. colorblind, like all other cattle. Um, so... 
they they do various phases during the bullfight. And in previous phases, a bullfighter will use a different cape, a capote. It's got a longer Spanish name, but I'm not even going to attempt to say it. Anyways, and they'll also charge that just as angrily. And that one's like um, magenta on one side and a gold color or blue sometimes on the other side. So it's definitely not just red. Um, do you know why they use red capes, though, in a bullfight? No. Yeah, it's awful. They um, use red capes in a bullfight to hide all the blood because they kill the bull. That's the thing, right? So yeah. they're just trying to hide all the blood. Uh, th- this one, I, honestly, the research was not that much fun because it's a really gross... I'm not trying to be that judgmental, but it's a pretty gross sport. And I do not enjoy reading about it. And that is the that is the end of that myth. Fair enough. We're going to talk about sharks. Okay. The myth is that sharks can detect a single drop of blood in the ocean a mile away. It's not true. They're not quite that good. Hmm. Again, this is just an excuse for me to talk about shark olfaction. So. Okay. That was one that I had kind of figured might have been true, but probably for more than sharks. I just didn't know the strength of that sensory, uh, that sense, I guess. Yeah. So, like, of course, they have a really good sense of smell. Um, that It's quite exaggerated, though. So, olfaction, that's smell, works the same pretty much, very similarly in most vertebrates. Um, when you smell something, the odor enters your nose and that activates sensory neurons in your nasal cavity. But sharks um, use their nares just for olfaction, not for respiration. So here's what I learned is that the term nares is properly used when they don't connect to the respiratory system. Nostrils is only for something that connects to the respiratory system. Okay. Yeah. Um, So sharks have specially designed skin folds called olfactory lamellae inside their nasal cavity. So um, just like a lot of different folds to give it more surface area, right? Yeah. Um, and that has the olfactory receptors that detect like the odor, the chemicals, right? So they, and then the receptors, when they're stimulated, will send an electrical signal to your sensory neurons within your olfactory bulbs of the brain. And then that continues into the olfactory tract and the olfactory lobe in the cerebral hemisphere. So because they're so sensitive, the cells are so sensitive, and because the olfactory bulb of the shark's brain is so big, then sharks can detect a really small amount of chemical. So, and when I say it's so big, um, in some sharks, the olfactory lobe weighs two-thirds of the total brain weight. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the sensitive varies depending on the chemical and type of shark and all that stuff. But for example, a lemon shark can detect tuna oil at, so they always use kind of parts per million to, yeah. to talk about this. That makes so, sense. A lemon shark can detect tuna oil at one part per 25 million parts. So that's about like 10 drops, like from a little eyedropper drops, in uh, like a home swimming pool. Like a, you know, in-ground backyard swimming pool. Yeah. That's what that one. Um, Some sharks can detect prey at one part per 10 billion. That's one drop in an Olympic-sized pool. Okay. Um, and then some sharks can detect that kind of concentration at a huge distance, but we're talking like at the most, depending on speed and water current direction, several hundred meters away. Right. Not a mile. Right. So they smell for other things, not just predation. They smell for mates, you know, um, like pheromones and stuff. 
And so I just want to clarify, if anyone was curious, that a mile is 1,609 meters approximately. So we were talking like a quarter of that distance at most, if not, you know, a fifth. Less, yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's another one. When you were a kid, were you told that if you chopped an earthworm in half, it would grow two new worms? No. Like each one, each half? No, I mean, I, I had heard that, but that's something I didn't hear until uh, like adulthood. Oh, that's good. And I did not believe I think it at that, that time. that makes kids want to chop up worms, which just kind of seems mean. I mean, doesn't a worm have a heart or a, or a similar organ? Worms have hearts, yeah. Well, well wouldn't, earthworms have hearts. It, and, and if you were to chop a worth, earthworm in half, wouldn't it make sense that if it were to survive, only the side with the heart would actually survive? Well, they have multiple hearts. In they do. They're segmented, which means most of their organs repeat per segment, which is probably what spawned the myth. Okay. But that doesn't mean that all of their organs are in each segment. Right. And this this myth was specific to earthworms. Okay. Um, so earthworms, which, by the way, are in the genus Lumbricus. There's 1,800 species of them. They do have a head end and a tail end. Okay. Um... You can probably, when you picture them in your head, it probably makes sense to you because the head of the worm is on the end closest to that kind of band. Yeah. That band is called the clitellum, by the way. Okay. That's the head. The other hand is the tail. So the head of the worm probably would survive and it would regenerate its tail if you chopped it in half. But the tail part would then die. Sure. It would not grow a new worm. Um, but this list leads me into there is... A type of worm that does have like ridiculously amazing regenerative properties, um, but it's not an earthworm. It's a planarian flatworm. Mm. So they are not very closely related to earthworms whatsoever. Perfect. They're in the phylum Platyhelminthes, um, which a lot of like tapeworms and other other things like parasitic worms tend to belong to. But planarian flatworms aren't parasites usually. Um, a planarian, a planarian can regrow its body from a slice as small as one three hundredth of its original size. Holy cow. Yeah. So regeneration takes two to three weeks to complete, generally. Um, and it's, like, super important, actually, to our current medical research to figure out how they're doing this because they use stem cells. Um, they have pluripotent stem cells. So pluripotent, like, you know, multi-power. Like they can, yeah. pluripotent meaning they can turn into any part. Correct. Because there's different yeah. types of stem cells. Some that can only make this part or that part, whatever. But pluripotent can, can differentiate into all different things. Um, and pluripotent stem cells make up one fifth of their bodies. Humans only have pluripotent stem cells when they're embryos, like before birth. Yeah. And after that, we mostly can't regenerate things, as you know. Um, humans do have a few types of tissues that regenerate. Liver, bone marrow, outer layers of our skin and inner yeah. layers of our intestine are some examples. Um, I think, though, the most interesting part of the worm regeneration is that it's able to remember events that happened prior to it being chopped up. Really? Each segment was going to remember still what happened to it. Interesting. So 
What happened is that researchers um, made this computer-controlled apparatus that taught some of these worms to tolerate light in open spaces because normally they're very extremely averse to okay. light in open spaces. Um, they, taught, they, they took about 10 days to teach them this. And then once they had the worms moving without being scared towards food in the middle of a lighted dish, they collected them and cut off their heads and removed all traces of their brain. And then they gave them about two weeks to regenerate. And once they did that, they put them back in the Petri dish. And they didn't take food right away. It did take one training session. But that was nowhere near the 10 days it took them right. before. And then all of a sudden they exhibited no apprehension again, moving towards the center of the bright light. So they had somehow retained their memories in all parts of their body. Wow. it's fascinating. Right. So um, this is another... So not only do we want to kind of look into them to figure out some more stuff about stem cells, but I don't know. It's a very interesting research track. Um, how are they doing that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, what a weird experiment. Uh, yeah. You know, on some Sometimes layers a little I feel morbid. like these guys go to work and they go over they're like, guess what I did at work today. Yeah. <laughs> um. This one's a short one. I just wanted to clarify this because I find these guys pretty disgusting. Earwigs. Oof. Earwigs. Mm-hmm. Here's the myth is that they bury into your ears and that's why they're named earwigs. Oh, Would yeah. it make you feel better to know they don't do that? Not really because they're oh, already... They're pretty gross. I have bad experiences with them living in California anyways. But they didn't go in your ears. No, but they went into literally anything you left outside overnight. But not your body. True. <laughs> Which is the creepy part, right? Just putting on shoes with earwigs at the bottom are, is... Despite the fact that they do like those dark and cozy yeah. places, they won't go in your ears. So their name comes from the belief in the 18th century that they buried into sleeping humans' ears and into their brains, causing pain, deafness, and death. I don't know why I made this stuff up. We just terrified ourselves. Well, the they, anxiety. There's no they, proof of this. The Their look is... Ooh, creepy, and I get it. Yeah. <laughs> they eat plants and sometimes small bugs, and okay. they don't eat your brain. Well, that's good. The end. Yeah, good. Okay. Myth busted. Myth busted. So, let's talk about ostriches. Let's do that. The myth is do that ostriches their bury the their head in the no, sand. No, they don't. <laughs> I told you you'd know all these myths, but that's there not the There was one point. I didn't, so it's Earwigs? good. No, the sharks. Oh. I wasn't quite sure <laughs> okay. what length, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, like I said, it's really just an excuse to talk about each animal, not really like totally. the myth itself. So um, let's talk about ostriches because I have some cool ostrich facts let's right do now. Um, so since this myth goes back to ancient Roman times, um, and I know the first thing I thought was ancient Roman times did plenty do it. Did plenty of the elders start this rumor? Um, I don't think so. It doesn't seem to have been started by plenty. But what did plenty say about ostriches? That was plenty level ridiculous. Well, he said that they could digest anything, which started the rumor that they ate iron. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Good old plenty. Um, so this is obviously such a prominent myth through history that we have a whole saying about burying your head in the sand, meaning a person that refuses to face their problems head on. 
Okay. How did this happen? How did we decide that they did this? Okay. I don't know. So the first thing to consider is ostriches have a pretty small head relative to their body size. So when, and then their, their neck and head is a kind of different color that blends pretty well into the ground. Mm -hmm. So when they put their head down to the ground to nibble at the grass, they might look like they were burying their head. Oh, sure. Um, also, they don't build nests for their eggs. They do dig holes in the sand to keep their eggs in. And while the eggs are incubating, both males and females will take turns to use their beaks to rotate them. So maybe people saw them doing that or like yeah. they buried their head in the sand. Um, but what does an ostrich do when it gets scared? Does it, it bites or runs? Right. So the first thing it would do is to run. So ostriches, do you want to guess how fast an ostrich can run? Oh, man. Uh, 70 kilometers per hour. Yeah. How do you know that? Just ostriches can guess. run 70 kilometers an hour. And that's crazy. It is. Especially for a two-legged animal. But their we, legs have two, are... we have Oof. two legs. We have two legs. Yeah. And I, I do. And and humans run at like I forgot to look it up. Twenty? No, not even close. I'm gonna Google this right now as I'm chatting with you because I, I it's really slow. Yeah. Um I kay. mean looking at an ostrich though, I like I don't find that surprising. Like They're... thirteen kilometers an hour for like the fastest men. Oh, okay. Compared oh. to seventy. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit slower. Yeah. So, they use their wings for air rudders, which helps them do, like, their little zigzagging and their sprinting. Anyways, ostriches are one of the fastest animals in the world when it comes to sprinting. Everyone knows cheetahs are fast, but they can only run for a very short amount of time. Yeah. Okay. How long do you think an ostrich can run at top speed of 70 kilometers an hour? Are we talking distance or time? Time. 20 minutes? 30 minutes. That was kind of close. It was. I don't know why you're like taking all my thunder. Because you're supposed to guess something like way far away from the real answer. Instead Sorry. of being so close. And then I'm Three like. Three minutes? It doesn't even seem impressive anymore when I right. say it. When you guess such a close guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like so literally they're running like 35 kilometers in half an hour. That's that crazy. Yeah. Anyways. Sometimes they can't run. And then they're going to fight. So ostriches can get up to 2.8 meters tall yeah. and 140 kilograms, yeah. which for non-metric people is nine foot two and just under 310 pounds. Yeah. With strong legs. They, they can, can run. kick with a force of 140 kilograms per square centimeter. And again, for non-metric people, that's almost 2000 pounds per square inch of force. Uh-huh. They can kill a lion with a single kick if they needed to. Lions do not hunt adult ostriches, really. No, they're scary I mean, beasts. I guess they might, but you know what I mean? It's not one of their regular food sources because that is that is deadly. So here's some fun ostrich facts. Ostriches lay the largest eggs of any bird. Probably knew that one. Yeah. But they have the largest eyes of any land animal. Really? And unlike all other living birds, they pee and poop separately. You're the oh. only bird that does that. Really? They don't just have that white bird mixed of excrement. I can't remember what that's called, but yes. I don't know. We just call it poop, but you know it's yeah. a mixture of both. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's ostriches. Very cool. Other birds. Let's talk about other birds now. Have you heard a myth 
That if you touch a baby bird, the mom will reject it, so you shouldn't touch one. Yeah, I've heard that before. And you knew it was a myth. You I knew mean, all my myths. I, did I actually Just admit know? it. You know all my myths. That was That's one where it's like I had serious doubts um, about it, but wasn't sure. Like living on an acreage, I remember birds hitting, like even young birds hitting windows. We put them in a shoebox and then like later take them out again, and they seem to go back to nests. So here's the thing is that birds can't really detect human smell. In fact, they don't really smell much. Okay. They have small and simple olfactory nerves. They have a very limited sense of smell because they have very little use for a sense of smell. I mean, when you think about it, when they're flying around and the wind is blowing, like there's just not a lot of information they're going to get from the air in general. They do have olfactory glands, but they're very underdeveloped in most species, like songbirds, which is the ones that are most typically going to be nesting in your yard, right? But there are some birds that can smell pretty well. Um, the ones that locate food using olfactory glands. Um, vultures. Yeah. Seabirds. Okay. Kiwis. And parrots. Tend to have well-developed olfactory glands. Okay. So... The real thing, though, is if you disturb the nest, then the parent might abandon it. So it's not the smell. they would abandon the whole nest, though. Yes, including the young. Right. But that's more likely to happen when the eggs are still eggs. Okay. Because once they hatch the um, bird, baby bird, they're much more invested in raising that bird. But, like, any disturbance in their nest is a sign for them that a predator's been there and it's just not safe for them to be there. Um, they get, ugh, they get flighty. The argument, <laughs> the article I read kept using that term. I'm like the bird flighty as if that's the best pun ever. So a bird will get quite flighty if you mess, disturb their nest, visually disturb it. Um, so just don't do that. Got it. Yeah. So my next myth is that monkeys eat bananas. And it's one of those ones that you don't really think about. But once you do, you're like, oh, yeah, I mean, of course, why would a, how would a monkey get a banana? Yeah, I mean, geographically, I have to admit, I did think that that one was correct for a long time. Well, I mean, think about bananas and okay. what you now know about bananas. Wild bananas are not a thing that we eat, right? No. We've, we've, I'm a lot of people have probably learned that the bananas that were growing in the wild were not really a fruit. They just mostly were just seed. Yeah. And we humans have cultivated bananas. The bananas that we eat don't grow wild. They only grow on plantations, right? Like farm plantations. Yeah. So where would a monkey be getting those if they weren't breaking into a plantation? And they probably tend to stay away from such large human areas you know some monkeys might do that and that's fine but that's not really a general thing that monkeys eat right yeah don't i couldn't figure out where the myth got started some people thought curious george started it really okay sure i I mean yeah obviously monkeys eat fruits right um they leaves flowers nuts insects all that stuff um but zoos i mean in the olden days they used to give monkeys bananas, like I said, probably after the Curious George thing. And then uh, they stopped because they're just too sugary. Um, if they're, they have t- too many calories, they just have too many calories. It's bad for their teeth. It's going to rot their teeth and it's going to give them di- like diabetes, honestly, mm. to eat the fruit that we make. 
that show you something about our fruit? Yeah. It would give our ancestors, monkeys, diabetes. They obviously enjoy them. They did a study in 1936 with um, food choice, you know, vegetables, nuts, bread. Um, grapes were the number one food choice. Okay. By monkeys and bananas second. Nuts and bread were last. So that just proves that they're like us. And if they are offered junk food, they're going to take it, even though it's bad for them. Yeah. Um, similarly, I like to jump off that to the don't feed carrots to a bunny. Okay. They are very high in sugar and they'll probably give them the runs and maybe give them diabetes. <laughs> and, all- <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it got me thinking, why do we think that bunnies eat carrots? Why did that, like Peter Contact, like wh- where did this come from? Um, so this is actually a pretty new myth. In 1940, a cartoon bunny appeared in Warner Brothers' Merry Melodies. A hunter tries to lure him out of his hole using a carrot, saying, rabbits love carrots. Or he may have said, wabbits love carrots. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then the rabbit in question happily eats the carrot throughout the cartoon, saying his now famous catchphrase. What's up, Doc? That's the one. Yeah. So Bugs Bunny actually started this whole thing. But again, I was, I want to dig deeper because like, why? Why did they just decide in their cartoon that he sure. was going to be eating a carrot? So the creators were modeling his behavior on like, it was like, it was a complete parody that you probably would have understood if you were watching media in 1934. Oh, I missed that year. <laughs> right? Yeah. Clark Gable. I'm sure you've heard of Clark Gable. I have. So... They're modeling Bugs Bunny on Clark Gable's character in 1934's It Happened One Night. So at the time, viewers probably would recognize kind of the satire because there's a scene in which Clark Gable is uh, casually eating a carrot while explaining his rules for hitchhiking. But the cultural significance of that movie didn't like last the same way Bugs Bunny did. Sure. Um, So yeah, now kids just grow up being like, yeah. Rabbits love carrots, and no one has any idea where this came from. And I find that very interesting origin story for why rabbits like carrots. Yeah. Okay. Okay. How long is one dog year, Everett? A year. No. No one knows where the whole seven human years thing came from, but it's not seven years. But it's also not one year. Okay. But the thing is about dogs is that... Every year is not equivalent to a certain number of human years. Yeah. They grow at different rates depending on how young they are, basically. So year one for a dog is like 15 human years. And then their second year is like nine human years. And their third year is like five human years. So it's kind of interesting the way that works where it kind of shows us like... Okay, now a one-year-old dog is not like a toddler, but you know what I mean? Like maybe a few months old, you know? So it it shows you kind of how dogs go through their developmental stages. They do a lot of growing up front, like most animals do that don't have such a giant brain that humans do. Right. That's in that. Okay. Okay. The next myth is the alpha beta wolf theory. Okay. So... Calling wolves alpha and beta animals comes from research on wolves in captivity and does not hold up at all for wild groups of wolves. Um, So the myth says the leader is the alpha male 
as you may have heard. This is where the term alpha male came from. Yeah, I have heard this. Um, and then there may be several ranks, like the beta and gamma, and maybe, you know, down to the omega wolf. Who knows, right? Um, people just took the study and ran with it. And then, you know, long story short, started erroneously applying it to things like dog training. And these days, sadly, human dating and that type of thing, unfortunately. Right. So in reality, most wolf packs consist of two parents and their puppies. Maybe some one to three year old kind of, you know, juvenile offsprings of those parents that haven't dispersed yet. The adults are in charge simply because they're the parents of the rest. Sure. Not because there's an alpha wolf or whatever. Right. Um, it's like a human family. You don't talk about the alpha male and alpha female and the beta child. <laughs> I don't usually, no. I guess some people Only might. in the rarest of occasions, I it guess. It seems a little biblical, to be honest, but... Oh, yeah. But I just wanted to know more about how this happened. How did... Because this is a big... is a big thing in society for a long time. Yeah. So, Rudolf Schenkel wrote about the social structure and body language of wolves in 1947... But where do you study wolves at the zoo? Zoo. Okay. So in the Basel Zoo in Switzerland, um, there were about 10 wolves kept together in a small area, 10 by 20 meters. And they're probably, are they all a family or just like no. a random set of wolves? Right. Like you're not good, right? They're not related. Yeah. They're in a way too small of an area. Um, so he saw the highest ranked female and male formed a pair and that the hierarchy would change and... Even though he did mention that it was possible wild wolf packs had a monogamous pair, the puppies and pups, people didn't pay any attention to that part. They kind of disregarded it. Um, and his work was really influential. And what else was influential at the time was the observations of chickens. In the 1920s, the term pecking order was coined, which describes how chickens can be aggressive towards the birds you know, below them in the social hierarchy. And not aggressive towards birds above them yeah. in social hierarchy. And that's not a myth. That's true. Pecking yeah. order is a verifiable, true thing in some poultry. So people were like, okay, we're just going to apply this to all other animals because we want to. Chickens like, and wolves. No I mean, I usually think of them in the same, you just know, every group. animal needs to have a hierarchy, right? Yeah. That's kind yeah. of how science used to think, right? That, yeah, that's you how know, some people we applied think. a lot of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then a bunch of, a bunch of research was done on wolf packs in the 60s and 70s, again, on wolves in captivity. Um, and these wolves aren't related, kept in unnaturally small areas. So of course they had more conflict. They had a lot of stuff going on that's not going to happen in the wild. Sure. In 1970, the book, The Wolf, Ecology and Behavior of an Endangered Species was published. And this book was written by one David Meck. Now, don't blame him, but he was one of the world's most prolific wolf researchers. So all of a sudden it exploded in popularity, this concept. Um, everyone seemed to know about it. And he realized it was a mistake. And it had already gotten really popular. Okay. Um, he wrote on his website that he repeatedly asked the publisher to stop printing the book because the information is outdated, especially the alpha wolf, con- alpha wolf concept. Um, but the book's still being sold today by the publisher because they won't listen. Well, it makes money. Yeah. So in uh, 1999 and 2000, David Mack published two articles trying to correct, like he there actually did read his essay on this, trying to correct this misunderstanding about the wolf pack organization. He had been studying wild wolf packs on Ellesmere Island for 13 summers. So that's in Canada, very north Canada, if anyone was wondering. Um, he was able to acclimatize 
this one wolf pack to his presence so that he could get up to one meter from them wow. without disturbing them by the end of the 13 um, summer study them. So he got so much data. Um, he wrote, dominance fights with other wolves are rare if they exist at all. During my 13 summers where I observed the pack, I saw none. Um, and then I just want to, anyway, so don't blame him. <laughs> he tried his best, but didn't seem to matter. Um, I do want to clarify another wolf myth. Wolves do not howl at the moon. You're right. The howl is always directed towards another wolf. Yeah. Um, whether it's like, you know, finding the pack or voice affection or whatever it is, but it has nothing to do with the moon. I'm whatsoever. Sure at some point, a wolf has howled while a moon has been present. Oh, of course. There's lots of beautiful pictures of that. Yeah. But it could be like when it's light out, they're just more communicative. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Or like, it's just easier to take a picture when the moon yeah. is out. Like. Or they're communicating consistently and that also happens to be when there's a moon there. Yeah. 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 So, here's the myth. These can only sting you once and will sting you over and over, right? That's the myth. Right. Do you know why that's a myth? Uh, I'm pretty sure wasps bite repeatedly, and if they sting, they only sting once. No, that's no? not why it's a myth. Okay. So, there are around 20,000 species of bees in the world. Okay. There are eight species of honeybees. Okay. Out of 20,000. Right. Honeybees are the only bee... That can only sting once. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I found one that you really genuinely didn't know. Yeah. I want to clap. I'm so excited. Okay. I wish I just ate out of 20,000. Yeah. Anyways, um, here's a random fun fact. Beekeeping began over 10,000 years ago. Cool. Okay. Um, honeybee stingers have barbs that get lodged in the skin. When the bee flies away, it leaves the stinger and venom sack behind, ripping itself apart. Bee dies. The venom sac continues to pump poison into you, or yeah. whatever it's done, um, for minutes after the bee is gone, usually. And um, another fun fact. I think it's a fun fact. The pain caused by some bee stings is from an acidic compound in the venom called melatonin. And in wasp stings, it's usually a chemical called acetylcholine, okay. which is what causes the primary amount of pain. The only sting once thing doesn't apply, though, to all the other 19,992 species of bee. Got They have a smooth stinger. Um, but the only sting once rule isn't even true all the time for honeybees. Really? So, yeah, when they sting humans, okay. That's probably going to be the case. Okay. But if they're going to attack something with thinner skin, like other insects... It doesn't get lodged. They're generally strong enough to pull the sting out, and then they can sting again if they need to. Okay. Um, fun fact, I think you probably in this one, but only female bees can sting you because a stinger is a modified ovipositor, like an egg-laying yeah. device, so only females have stingers. Yeah. You can pick up any male bee, and it will never be able to sting you. Well, yeah, drones so if you're really good at, at identifying sexing bees, you could... There is an article about someone... It's not someone that difficult. There's an article about someone that would go around grabbing male bees and throwing them in her mouth. Not like eating them, but just to show you that she was so good at picking out which one was a male bee that she could throw it in her mouth without getting stung. Yeah, it's not that hard. I mean, you say that, but I'm not going to throw bees in my mouth, so... I'd probably be confident <laughs> in doing that. <laughs> you can just throw some bees in your mouth? Maybe one. Oh my yeah. God. 
Oh, if you gave me goodness. a moment to pick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's one that I totally spoiled for you because I got too excited about it, but I think you didn't know. Okay. The myth is that chameleons change colors to blend in with their surroundings. That's true. I did think that that was true. This is untrue. False. Partially based in fact, like most myths. They, of course, they do change colors. I'm not saying that chameleons do not change colors. Right. Those colors do often match the environment, like when they're green and they sit in some leaves, right? Yeah. But they're not purposely matching. They can't turn whatever color they want. The change is just based on, like, when it's changing, like, mood. temperature or mood. Like yeah, a mood like, ring. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, except for the fact that mood rings only work by temperature <laughs> and not by mood. <laughs> I mean, yeah, don't spoil that for all the children out there. Yeah. Um, so basically, they exhibit these complex and rapid color changes during social interactions, like male contests or courtships, or they'll turn like a pale color to reflect heat if they get too hot. I mean, that makes sense. So yeah. how does a chameleon change colors? This is my biology nerd coming out. Do you want to know how a chameleon changes colors? Okay. Yeah. So they have this lattice of nanocrystals. Okay. In one of the top layers of their skin cells. Yep. And these cells are called iridophores. And the tiny crystals are made of guanine, which is one of the four nucleic acid building blocks in DNA. Okay. C-T-A-G. That's the G, guanine. Cool. Um, The nanocrystals have this, like, really highly ordered arrangement, like most crystal structures. Yeah. And that would normally cause them to strongly reflect a certain color of light only. And then, for example, if the male, there's a male and he encounters another male in his territory, he can stretch his skin cells, which broadens the nanocrystalline lattice and causes it to reflect, let's say, a longer wavelength of light, yeah. like yellow. So, it, but it's a, uh, a physical process of changing the lattice, not a chemical process. Right. Okay. Right. Unlike, or something like process. an octopus. Chameleons also have a deeper layer of iridophores. That, that's what's going to reflect the heat-producing infrared light, which is what helps them stay cool. And scientists are studying chameleons to see how we could make new materials that stretch to change colors like that. Right. Which would be cool. cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Another one. I know that you know the answer to this, but there's some cool facts here. Lemmings commit mass suicide is a myth okay so let's learn about lemmings lemmings are in the subfamily arvicolinae and they're like a rodent they're a short-tailed vole they are adorable yeah please look up a picture of a lemming they're so cute and and not the ones that are blue with green hair that you know walk off cliffs in a video game what's that from lemmings there's there's a there's a great video game series called lemmings (laughs) oh i didn't and they made them look more like little trolls than oh, animals. I see. Now, well, these adorable mouse-like little rodent guys live in, like, the tundra, mountain, open grassland areas. They're found all over the northern parts of the globe, like Russia, Norway, Alaska, the northern territories in Canada. Um, fun fact, the collared lemming is the only rodent that turns white in the winter. Those ones live oh. up in, like, Alaska and the territories. Cool. Yeah. So, obviously, this is a complete urban legend popularized by... The Walt Disney Corporation. Yay. And though they fabricated tons of things and really did popularize it, they didn't start the myth. That story has been around for a long time. Don't know when it started, but there is evidence dating as far back as August 1877. 
in that month's issue, this is so funny, I can't even read, okay, in that month's issue of Popular Science Monthly, they claimed that suicidal lemmings are swimming in the Atlantic Ocean to search for the submerged continent of Lemuria. That's why they all jump in the ocean and try to kill themselves. If I was a lemur, that's the best reason I'd be up there too. Not a lemur, a lemming. Lemming. I don't know why they called it Lemuria, but lem, I guess it starts with the same first three. Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's talk about that Disney movie that really kicked this, this yeah. off. Okay. So in 1958, Walt Disney made White Wilderness part of their true life adventure series. White Wilderness featured a segment on lemmings detailing this strange compulsion they had to commit mass suicide. And this is all in flagrant air quotations I'm doing here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in the lemming segment, the narrator Winston Hibbler explains, quote, a kind of compulsion seizes each tiny rodent, and carried along by an unreasoning hysteria, each falls into step for a march that will take them to a strange destiny. That destiny is apparently to jump in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, as they approach this, quote, sea, Hibbler says, they become victims of an obsession, a one-track thought. Move on, move on. The pack of lemmings reaches the final precipice. This is the last chance to turn back. Yet over they go, casting themselves out bodily into space. Okay, so then the voiceover then goes on to imply lemmings take this plunge every seven to ten years to alleviate overpopulation as if an animal is smart enough to be like, hey, we're getting overpopulated, let's all kill ourselves. Um, lemmings then in the movie are seen flying into the water and the final shot shows a sea full of dying lemmings. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Okay, and then do you know who cracked this case? Sherlock Holmes? The CBC. Did an expose in 1983. Good for them. The CBC and producer Brian Valley did an investigation and reported that the lemming scenes were faked. The lemmings supposedly committing mass suicide by leaping into the ocean were actually thrown off the cliff by the Disney filmmakers. The epic lemming migration was staged using very careful editing, some tight camera angles, and a few dozen lemmings running on a snow-covered Lazy Susan-type turntable. White Wilderness, for those who don't know, was filled in Alberta, Canada. Yay. The lemming scenes were filmed somewhere much closer to our home. Let me, let me, let me just fill something in. So there are about 20 lemming species found in the North Canada, America region, but not in our area of Alberta down here in Calgary. So what Disney did is that they bought a bunch of lemmings from some Inuit children in the Hudson's Bay region of Manitoba. That's a little bit of a trek. And flew them to Calgary, Alberta. Great. And threw them in the Bow River near downtown Calgary. Our wonderful hometown. Yay. Isn't that a wonderful thing to learn about our city? I just learned that about our city. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, wonderful world. Terrible. Yeah. Anyways... They used some really tight cropping shots and video editing to make it appear to be a sea. The Bow River looks nothing like no, an ocean for anyone like that's an ocean. not from here. Yeah. So I guess good video editing for 1958 Disney. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what truth, if any, is there to this lemming myth? All right. Lemming populations do fluctuate enormously. Okay. Um, you know, based on predators and food and climate, yada, yada, yada. In ideal conditions, their population can increase by a factor of 10 in one year. Wow. Yeah. And then if they've exhausted the local food supply, they're going to disperse. Okay. So 
they'll do these mass dispersals. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of lemmings running in an area. Okay. If they can swim during the mass dispersal, they might cross bodies of water. Sometimes they drown. Yeah. That's about the only truth there is. Okay. Dispersal and accidental death is definitely a far cry from what Disney did in White Wilderness in Calgary, in the Bow River. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. Two more. I have an interesting one. This is what I did not know about. Here's a myth about cow tipping. What do you know about cow tipping? Uh, I mean, I've heard it's a thing that you're supposed to be able to just tip over a cow that's sleeping, mm. standing up. So I mean, don't cows sleep laying down though? Okay. So the myth is that cow tipping exists. Okay. It's not a thing. No one does it. It's not a thing. It's never been a thing. This is one of those my friends done it kind of things that no one has ever done. Yeah. Plus they're heavy. I had no idea that this was completely made up. So if you're not familiar with cow tipping, it's like apparently when you sneak up on an unsuspecting sleeping cow and push it over. And it's apparently funny because the myth is that they can't get up if they are tipped over. Yeah, the that, that doesn't thing. make sense to me. But okay, great. Okay, but this is why I've like I've Don't heard this, it. and I've always been like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, if you read the Far Side comics, you might see some. Oh, I've read a lot of Far Side. <laughs> a lot of cows in there. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Anyways, so the whole practice is generally considered an urban legend. The whole thing. Yeah. Um, it's kind of stems from a stereotype that rural citizens are so hard up for entertainment. There's nothing else yeah. to do that they're just gonna go push a cow over for fun. Yeah, right. Which like is so mean. To the cows and the people. This is just a mean stereotype. So some versions of the legend suggest that because cows sleep standing up, then you can... Well, they do. I'll explain. Don't worry. Okay. Um, then it's possible to, you know, approach them and push them over without them reacting. However, when a cow does sleep standing up, they're in a very light sleep. Sure. When they want to sleep deeply, they will lie down. Okay. And again, like, then they can get up. So I don't know why people yeah. thought they can get up. I've seen lots of cows uh, <laughs> laying down before. So, okay. Scientific research studies have been done to determine if cow tipping is theoretically possible. More than one scientific study at universities. That's where you do yeah. you know, scientific And all the studies academics. agree that cows are very well aware of their surroundings. Cows are very difficult to surprise. People just have this tendency to think cows are the dumbest animal no. in the entire world. Yeah, definitely not. Right. So they're very hard to surprise. They have a really excellent sense of smell and a really excellent sense of hearing. Um, they also would, of course, resist being pushed over. They don't just stand there while you push on them. No. Like... They don't. Have people seen cows? Anyways, like what animal wouldn't... Like what animal would just stand there and let you push it over? Okay, so... These studies estimate that the force needed to push a cow over would be between 3,000 and 4,000 newtons. So like 670 and 900 pounds of force needed. And that depending on resistance, because again, this is all theoretical, you would need between 4 and 14 people to push over a cow that wasn't trying to run away from you. That seems much more reasonable. Right. So it seems like this legend first began in the 70s. But the belief that certain animals cannot get up if they're pushed over has very old roots. Okay. This one I am going to blame on Pliny the Elder. Tortoises? No. Both Julius Caesar and Pliny the Elder... Couldn't get up when they were pushed over? (laughs) Wow. 
know. Yes, and then Pliny wrote that in Natural History. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had this image of someone pushing over Julius Caesar and him tipping over like a domino and being like, I can't get up. Yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, no, they both wrote down and said that the European elk had no knee joints and wouldn't be able to get up if it was tipped over. No knee joints. Yeah. How does it run? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's no more ridiculous than anything else Pliny has uh, yeah, said. Yeah, okay? sure. Ostriches eat iron. Anyways, Pliny is great. If you haven't listened to our Pliny episode, you really should go back and listen to it because it's a treasure. Okay. Yes. Last myth I want to talk about is the jellyfish thing. The, the one that you're supposed to pee on the wound? Yeah. Yeah, that always seemed very sketchy. Okay. So, again, you know it's a myth, but I bet you don't know exactly how jellyfish stings work. I don't. So I'm going to tell you some cool stuff, because I learned about, I remember learning about this in school, and I've relearned about it now, and it's just so interesting. Okay. So, jellyfish belong to the phylum Cnidaria. If anyone's interested, that's spelled C-N-I-D-A-R-I-A, because... Other languages. That did not originate in English. Um, like other, all other cnidarians, they have special cells along their tentacles called cnidocytes. Again, spelled with a C-N if you want to look that up. Mm-hmm. So within those cells are little harpoon-like structures full of venom called nematocysts. That one's spelled with an N. Nematocysts. Yeah. The nematocysts shoot out when they're triggered by touch and then they can penetrate the human skin in less time than it takes to blink. And I, like I said, I think the way that the nematocysts work is super cool. So let's talk about it. Um, If you want to picture it in your head, a nematocyst is a bulb-shaped capsule embedded embedded in the tentacle lining. Okay. So like, you know, just a little cup, like a cup. Think about a cup. Okay. That's easier. Yes. It has solid, like elastic walls and a lid kind of structure on top of it that keeps the capsule closed. Okay. And there are thousands of them per tentacle. Okay. Okay. And what's in the capsule, sir? That was my next sentence. Let's go there. <laughs> Inside are these strong dart-like protein tubes okay. with spiked barbs at the end. And they are loaded with neurotoxins to kill, stun, paralyze, you know, whatever prey. And they have these threads coiled around them, which keeps them tethered to the capsule when they're launched. So they are like harpoons. Exactly. Almost almost like a a harpoon. Yeah. Um, Okay. So here's what happens. When they contact prey or you, um, that'll trigger this lightning fast buildup of seawater inside the capsule, raising the hydrostatic pressure inside to such a level that the lid of the capsule will pop open. Okay. And the barb is going to shoot out. The thread around it's going to uncoil, but again, keep it attached to that capsule. Now, Here's a really cool part. That all happens within a millionth of a second. It is the fastest process known in animal systems. Really? That's pretty cool. Fastest. It is also close to the force of a bullet in terms of power. Wow. Which tells you how they can like, I don't know, go through a crab shell or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So it is crazy fast, just crazy fast and crazy powerful. And then, like I said, they're barbed, so they're like an arrowhead. They yeah. stick into the prey, and they inject toxin pretty much over and over and over into the tissues. Um, the pain is going to start to radiate from that sting site. It's going to itch, burn, throb, blister. If you scratch it, it'll make the pain worse because rubbing will activate the nematocyst to release more venom. 
Um, if you get stung by a jellyfish in North America, you'll probably feel better in 24 hours. Um, the pain will peak like five minutes after the sting occurs and it'll start to dissipate after that slowly. Um, obviously depends on the type of jellyfish, but you know, we don't have really bad ones here. Like they have in Australia where lifeguards have to have like anti-venom and morphine and stuff literally on the beaches. Um, so for treatment, it's recommended you wash the air with vinegar or salt water. If you don't have any vinegar, which will deactivate the nematocysts that are still hanging on to you. Um, there are a few species, uh, where you would want to use like a baking soda, seawater paste almost to rub it on yourself. So, you know. Baking soda, vinegar, common yeah. common beach items. Um, so once you have rinsed to deactivate all the nematocysts, then what you want to do is remove the bits of tentacle that are still attached to you. Um, you can use tweezers, but a better way is coat them with shaving cream. Again, common beach items. Or like this, like a seawater sand kind of paste. And then you can like use a credit card or hard plastic or even a razor, kind of like scrape that off. Okay. Yeah. Um, if you try to rinse it with fresh water, it is going to have the opposite effect. So if you change the balance of like the, the solutes in the water. Yeah. Um, like the concentration of salt inside and outside of the nidocyte, you'll set off more stinging. Yeah, because the toxin will come out as the salt tries to like balance Go in. yeah like yeah. you're gonna put you're gonna have more water rush into the capsule yeah. basically that Correct. way right just due to diffusion mm-hmm. um right so and is it a semi-permeable membrane or is it just like no it's been opened so it's just an open capsule now i mean we know water can get in right yeah either way we know water can get in that's how sure. they're activated yeah so um, yeah, so adding fresh water to the sting site would dilute the salt outside the cell and unbalance everything. Anyways, the nematocysts are going to release more venom, cause more pain. It's a very bad idea. So what about urine? Well, at the very worst, you're going to have pee on you. Yeah. Or sorry, that's the very best. That's the best possible scenario is you have pee on you and you don't feel any better. Urine has some salt and some electrolytes, uh, but mostly it's just it's made water. of water. Yeah. So... It'll probably hurt worse. It'll probably make the nematocysts fire just like fresh water would, right? So, bad idea. Yeah. And, and not even just, like, unhelpful, like, like really actively bad idea. Um, the, the myth probably came from the ammonia and urea in urine because you can use ammonia to deactivate the... But there's just not... You know, it's too delayed. There's not significant enough. Yeah, yeah. So, it's an old wives' tale. Yeah. It doesn't appear to have originated from Friends. Okay. Since there was that Friends episode in 1997. There was, yeah. But that, like Disney, really Helped popularized it and, like, shot it into the mm-hmm. um, zeitgeist, yeah. you know. Well, yeah. and, and why is it that when you're swimming, you'll never hear a jellyfish coming? What? They don't make noise. What do you... Because the joke? sea oh. is silent. Oh, no. It's a good way to cap that one off, I think. I mean, don't you have to say Nidarian for that joke to work? You just Jellyfish don't have a silence, <laughs> but Nidarian does. That's right. Wait, so you knew that joke, so you must have known that they were Nidarian with a C-N. Well, no, I just made it up. Oh, did you actually? <laughs> of course. That's really clever. Well, thank you. Oh. 
All right, so that is all of the um, animal myths that apparently everyone probably knew were already myths, but I do hope you learned some other cool things, like that Disney did some terrible things in the Bow River of our city. Yeah. Womp womp. So thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Teach Me Something. Um, once again, I have no idea what the next episode's going to be about, but I'm thinking like history. I think I think That'd a history great. episode is going to be next. That's what I'm feeling. We haven't done a little history in a while. Um, so yes, thank you again. I am Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. <laughs>